Once upon a time, in a kingdom far, far away, there lived a young girl whose hair made of gold. The people in the village saw her. They said, oh, how beautiful she is. And they showed her a beautiful house, a beautiful planet Mars. And they said, come live here forever. And the young girl said, oh, Mars is a planet where life is different, clean and pretty. But how do you get there? Where do you find a taxi? Do you take a bus? And how do you know you're there when you're there? But the people in the village were very poor, and every night they crept into the house where the girl slept. They cut off a piece of her golden hair and they sold it for money. She'll never notice, they said. And soon all the gold was gone from her head. And the people said, oh, she's not beautiful at all. And they took her from the beautiful house. They drove her into the street. She went away and she never came back. Some people became hungry again and they went back to the beautiful house looking for gold. But there was no one there. Her face graced the cover of Vogue and Cosmopolitan dozens of times. She represented brands like Dior, Versace, Armani, and Yves Saint Laurent. She was photographed by some of the world's greatest photographers, including Francesco Scavullo and Richard Avedon. She popularized the concept of a single name long before Madonna, and she grew up in the Great Northeast. That's Northeast Philadelphia. Gia Marie Carangi moved to New York City in 1978 when she was barely 18 years old to pursue a career in modeling. She'd been signed by one of the biggest names in the industry, Wilhelmina Cooper, owner of Wilhelmina Models, Inc. There was very little runway leading to success for Gia. She landed and was almost instantly a superstar. Gia stood out. Her name stood out, just Gia. Her face, her look, her brown hair, and her couldn't-care-less attitude. All of it made her remarkably different in a sea of hundreds of beautiful faces. Within just three years, her career was on the decline because of her struggle with addiction. By late 1980, the number of bookings and photo shoots began to dwindle. People didn't want to take the risk this shooting comet might explode on their set. She developed a reputation for being high during appointments. Sometimes she'd leave photo shoots because her need to score was more than she could handle. Even her cover shot on the April 1982 edition of Cosmopolitan with Francesco Scavullo wasn't enough to revive her career. And maybe that wasn't a bad thing. Getting out of New York, getting away from the scene where drugs were everywhere, getting clean, focusing on her health, all of that became a priority for Gia Carangi. But it was so very hard for her to stick to that plan. In 1986, she learned her health was further compromised when she was diagnosed with acquired immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS. The Center for Disease Control first used the term AIDS in September 1982. The first commercial blood test to detect AIDS wasn't made available until March 1985. This was in the early days of even understanding the disease from a scientific perspective. There was so much still unknown over 30 years ago, and the unknown bred fear. According to a December 1985 poll in the Los Angeles Times, more than half the population in America at that point in time wanted to quarantine people with AIDS. They were also comfortable with the idea of ID cards for anyone who tested positive for AIDS. The Times poll also discovered one in seven adults in America supported tattooing people suffering from AIDS so they'd be recognizable and avoidable. This was the climate in the mid-80s about AIDS. This was the America Gia Karanji lived in when she was diagnosed with this disease. In the 1998 HBO docudrama Gia, there's a scene in the hospital after she received her diagnosis where she was treated by people in what looked like hazmat suits. That wasn't very far from the truth. Gia was a beautiful little girl who grew into a beautiful young woman. She may not have loved modeling, but she loved the freedom it gave her. She appreciated the money she made as a model. But at 18 years old, on your own, in a city like New York, so much bigger than Philadelphia, making $100,000 in a year with no one to tell you how to spend it, or more importantly, how to save it, 
No one telling you maybe you shouldn't stay out partying till 4 a.m. if you've got a photo shoot at 6. Gia Karanji had absolutely no boundaries. Technically, you are considered an adult at 18, but I think we'd be hard-pressed to find many 18-year-olds who wouldn't go a little crazy with all that money, all that recognition and praise, and no one around to say no to anything. This is the story of Gia Karanji, a woman whom many call America's first supermodel. I know there are others who cherish that moniker, but when you realize just how quickly Gia rose to the level of one of the most desired models in the country, it's hard to attach that phrase to anyone but Gia Karanji. More than being desired and admired, Gia wanted to be loved, especially by her mother. Whether she ever truly felt loved by the people who meant the most to her is a mystery to me. I've been infatuated with this girl for over 20 years. A few months ago, a Twisted Philly listener, Tim Kay, suggested I talk about Gia's life and her tragic death in an episode of Twisted Philly. I knew if I was going to talk about Gia Karanji, I wanted my very dear friend and podcaster, Margot D., to join me. Margot is equally enamored with Gia. In fact, we talked for quite a while before we recorded this episode, and Margot said, you can be haunted by Gia. That's how I've felt off and on over the past two months, reading even more about her life, her career, and every time I watched a video of her online or searched for photos I hadn't seen before. I'm Dina Marie, your co-host on this week's Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Philly. Philly. Margot Donahue. Hello there, my friend. Hello. I am so excited to have you joining me on this episode of Twisted Philly. You are a favored guest host among Twisted Philly listeners. Well, you are a favorite for book versus movie. You and I do the Stephen King episode. So likewise, my friend. Aw. Yep. And then you come on for some Philly episodes that either topics that you remember or something that happened in areas where you were from. And I think this particular topic is a topic about which you are very passionate. You have a lot of knowledge. And we're going to be getting into talks about a book associated with this episode as well as a film associated with this episode. So it felt like a perfect opportunity to have you come back and join Twisted Philly. Well, you know, I love doing this show and I loved my time in PA, as we like to say. We do. And and I've, I've been obsessed with this since 1995, I believe. So it's going on 24 years with Gia. I've been obsessed with the book and the movie and I've been in the weeds and I actually follow her ex-girlfriend, Sandy Linter on Instagram. She's got a great Instagram account. Best Instagram account. We'll talk about Sandy. I mean, I feel like the book and the movie don't do do her justice. Now that I follow her, yeah. There's just so much wrong in the film. Yeah. And we'll get into that. But before we dive in, you mentioned social media. Let's take a minute and remind folks about all of your amazing shows because you have a new show that you (laughs) weren't doing the last time you were on. So let's make sure we get plugs for that. All of your shows and where folks can find you on social media. Well, thank you so much, you guys. Uh, So I've been on before to talk about the Dorking Out show, which I co-host with my friend Sonia Mansfield. We talk about movies, and a lot of Twisted Philly people showed up as soon as that was mentioned, so thank you. Yay. Yay. And so Sonia and I launched a show. It's called What a Creep, and we take turns talking about a famous creep. Um, At this episode, I'm talking about Ted Nugent. We've talked about Bill Maher. We talked about Ted Bundy. I'm going to be talking about Bill Cosby soon. So we just each take a, a creep. We talk about it. And then we pick a person who's not a creep and end the show that way. So it ends on like a positive note. So that's what a creep. Um, it's There's book versus movies. Dina is often a guest on that show. So come check it out. We talk about books and movies. And there's the Fit Bottom Girls podcast. That's a fitness podcast if you're interested. And then there's the Best Neighbors podcast where I record with my next door neighbor and we get together every Sunday morning and we talk pop culture and Real Housewives and all that good shit. As Margot mentioned, and as you heard in the intro to this episode, today we are talking about Gia Marie Karanji. 
She was born in 1960 in the Great Northeast. So that's Northeast Philadelphia. Gia's mom was only 21 years old when she married Gia's father, her father Joe. He was 32 when they got married in 1956. Within three years, Gia's mom had three babies under three years old. Wow. I can't even imagine that. My mom had four kids in five years. Very similar situation. God bless her. Yeah. Gia's father was a restaurateur. He owned a chain of hoagie shops around Philadelphia. If anybody's ever worked in the restaurant business or you're a chef or you have friends who are chefs, you know that they are incredibly demanding jobs. The hours are very long. They're typically working seven days a week. Yeah. One of our key research sources, besides our own obsession with Gia Karanji, is a book by former Philadelphia Magazine writer Stephen Freed. His book is called Thing of Beauty, The Tragedy of Supermodel Gia. And one of the things that he mentioned in this book is that the Karanji home was one of constant discord. And Margo, you've read the book. I'd say that's probably putting it lightly. Yeah, it, it sounds like Gia's mother was having a very hard time being a young mother and trying to you know, keep herself together and projected a lot of that on her daughter. Um, her daughter was her jewel and Gia was beautiful from the day she was born. And I mean, unbelievably beautiful the day, you know, from the day she was born. And her mother took a lot of pride in her, but her mother had a lot of issues, let's just say. And so it was not a great situation for her and her husband. And the mother eventually left. And Gia was completely broken up by that. You know, back then, there was a lot of shame with parents divorcing. There was. I think the idea of a mother leaving in the 70s, so this would have been 1971, when Kathleen left Joe. And there were reports of violence between the couple. Sometimes Joe hit Kathleen. Sometimes she hit him back. I think he was very jealous of any time she spent away from the home. She seemed like she may have been a bit bored with their lifestyle. She was looking for something a bit more glamorous. And even though he did really well financially, it just wasn't a stable household. She, Kathleen, Gia's mom, was interviewed extensively in Stephen Freed's book. And one of the things that she mentioned was that she did report the abuse to the police. Mm -hmm. And nothing was ever done about it. And I think, you know, when we, when we consider the time when it happened, it's probably like, well, he's keeping his wife in line. Yeah. It really wasn't heard of a mother leaving a family because that's what Kathleen did. She just got to a point where she's like, I have to get out. This doesn't work for me. She felt that Joe would never let her have custody of the children. Right. So she just up and left on her own. She had two sisters. She was actually one of many children, but two of her sisters really helped out considerably with Gia, helped Joe, helped with Gia's older brothers, her Aunt Nancy and her Aunt Barbara. And I think that was a source of contention between the relationship between Gia's mother and her aunts for most of Gia's life as a child and as an adult. Gia's mom remarried very quickly and the kids didn't know about it. They weren't at the wedding. Right. They found out after the fact. I don't want to judge for how quickly anybody gets into a new relationship. Everybody's experiences are different. There's so much that people talk about over the course of Gia's entire lifetime that all of this affected her significantly. It made her feel unstable. And that led to her making choices when she was older. She didn't trust things to work out. You know, when she got a good friendship or a good relationship or whatever, she tested people like crazy. She was so sure they were going to just leave her at some point. And I think that's what motivated her to do that. I think that's a great point. I think she was trying to force that behavior to happen. Mm -hmm on her terms versus trusting someone, getting sucked in, and then realizing they're going to pull the rug out from under me when I'm not prepared for it. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a lot about Gia that reminds me of Nancy Spungen. And I think part of it is, you know, they were very similar in age. Nancy was born just two years before Gia. They were both very independent young women. By the time Gia was 14 years old, she was in the kind of Ziggy Stardust clique of kids in Philadelphia who were completely obsessed with David Bowie. Part of that is Bowie actually spent a decent amount of time in Philly in the early to mid-70s. He had concerts at the Tower Theater down in Upper Darby, which I can't even imagine how amazing that must have been. <laughs> I, I, I would kill to be in that audience. Are you kidding me? He did songs for Diamond Dogs with Kenny Gamble and Leon Hoff at Philly International Studios. Like his presence was felt in Philadelphia. And so there was this huge group of young adults, teens, who were just embodying what David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust stood for. 
And one of them was Gia Karanji, and she was only 14 at the time. Right. That was probably one of my most favorite parts to read in Stephen Freed's book, because he got into so much detail about the club kids of the 70s in Philadelphia. And it just, it seemed like such an exciting and unique time to be alive. I think it was also, you know, I mean, we're talking about the 70s. So here's 14-year-old, 15-year-old Gia dropping quaaludes and smoking pot. It's not like she was that wild because when you look at the conversations that Stephen Freed had with her friends and with her family, it's not like she did more drugs than anybody else did. No. That was around her age in the same point in time. Yeah, she was doing what everybody else was doing. And I think also she probably was working on, you know, figuring out her sexuality at the time, too. Bowie is a famous gender bender, you know, totally was okay with the queer kids and all the kids. And that's why they all loved him. And I'm sure that was part of the attraction for her, but I'm sure it was also part of the confusion for her, like navigating that in a time where, you know, gay people weren't out. It was against the law to be gay in a lot of places. It's, it's hard to think about that now, but absolutely, it was scary then. I mean, I remember growing up with a lot of homophobia. I don't know about you. I, I remember it even in high school. Yeah, same here. And that was in the, the mid to late 80s. Same here, yeah. And there weren't many people who were out in my high school. And I think that they probably were afraid to come out because there were kids that would walk around and use the F word and they would use gay as a derogatory slur. Mm -hmm. Who wants to subject themselves to that? Exactly. Exactly. You mentioned Gia's sexuality when she was about between like 15, 16 years old. She had one of her earliest, I think, significant relationships with another woman was a woman who was in the same kind of club scene as Gia. And Sharon was a good five or six years older than Gia. She was 21 when Gia was, you know, in her mid-teens. From everything I read, it doesn't sound like she took advantage of Gia. In fact, at least for a time, it seemed like she was very concerned about their relationship. She was concerned about the age difference. She was concerned about perceptions around Philly, about both of them being in a gay relationship because This woman was, she wasn't sure if she was gay or bisexual. She also was fairly closeted about any relationships outside of a heterosexual relationship, while Gia was very demonstrative Mm -hmm. about any relationship that she was in. She was affectionate. I like to think from what I read that there was some sensitivity around the age difference, but, you know, we're still talking about a woman that was 21 years old dating a girl that was barely 16. Yeah. And they're at two very different points in their life. One of the clubs that they frequented was really sort of the launching pad for Gia's career. And I think that there's a misconception about Gia Karanji that she was discovered working at her dad's hoagie counter. That's not really what happened. Gia barely worked at any of the hoagie shops because she was too busy going out. She had her first car by the time she was 16. I mean, she loved the Philly nightlife and she made the most of it. There was a Philadelphia hairdresser named Maurice Tannenbaum. He really wanted to become a fashion photographer. He would frequent a lot of these clubs to, you know, to find people that would be good for him to photograph and maybe help them build a portfolio while it also helped him build a portfolio. And one night at this club, DCA, he saw Gia. Now, she'd been doing some modeling around Philly at that time, but her look and her attitude was just too big, I think, and too unique too mature for Philadelphia, this girl needed to be in New York City. Absolutely. Tannenbaum had a friend who was a a makeup artist, and she had also been a former model with Wilhelmina Models. She got them a meeting with Wilhelmina Cooper, who was the woman who founded Wilhelmina Models, Inc. And so I want to stop for a minute and talk about the film Gia, the HBO docudrama that premiered in 1998, because that is a scene they got so very wrong Oh, there's so much wrong in this movie. And I have not seen this movie in years. The way that Angelina Jolie, and it's a a performance, but I don't get a lot of Gia from her. And like she shows up, but she has the knife and she carves her name into a desk. Like it just, it's absurd. And that's not what happened. No. I think Angelina Jolie has some incredible moments in that film. I mean, one, she is, my God, she's, I think she's like the most gorgeous woman on the planet. Agreed. This was not her first film, although a lot of people think it was. It was actually her seventh film. I rewatched it last week, just like I always do when we do a book versus movie episode. I have to rewatch right before we record. She has some incredible moments of like real raw emotion and depth. But the scene where Gia goes to Wilhelmina's office, if you watch the film or if you've already seen it, 
That did not happen. She did not pull out a knife. She did not threaten the receptionist. She did not carve her name in the desk. No. And I really blame the writers for what they put together in that film. There were some moments of authenticity, but there's a lot of that movie that I feel like plays like a caricature or a cliche. Studio 54, as soon as they start filming inside Studio 54, there's a girl laying on a bar with lines of cocaine on her stomach. That doesn't have to be the very first thing you see about Studio 54. Like, yes, there were a lot of drugs there, but that isn't necessarily the only impression of the 70s in New York. I have a lot of issues with the movie, not necessarily Angelina Jolie's performance, but the way that the character was written. Yeah, okay. She actually went to New York with Maurice Tannenbaum, with the makeup artist, and with her mother. Wilhelmina was immediately blown away with Gia. She signed her immediately. She moved to Manhattan in late February 1978. It was just after her 18th birthday. And she didn't want to live there alone. So the woman that she'd had a relationship with moved up with her. They were kind of on again, off again. Within a matter of months... That was it. Her career was skyrocketing. There was no struggling model. There was no struggling artist. It was almost like instant that she became famous. And I worked in the magazine industry for several years. And and modeling, usually it's like, it's a couple of years of just like go and knocking on doors. And you're working in catalogs if you're lucky. And it takes a long time to make it, especially in pages like Vogue and Cosmopolitan and Purpose Bazaar. And Gia was in there within a few months. And big deal. She spent barely three months doing go-sees. She'd have multiple appointments each day. She'd go see. That's why they call them a go-see, because you're literally going and seeing a photographer. And one of these sessions that she had, I think it's one of the most iconic photos of Gia Karangi. It's definitely one of my favorites. It was a series done by Lance Stedler. He had her put on his leather jacket and did a really heavy, smoky eye. And most of the photographs of her in the series are black and white. They're Gia in a leather jacket. There's nothing on under the jacket, but the jacket covers most of her upper torso. There's just a little bit of skin in between the opening of the jacket. He took dozens and dozens of shots of her, but there was one that was instant stardom. She's just sort of reclining back. I can't tell if she's on a couch or not. She's got this look on her face like, I don't care if you think I'm beautiful. I'm doing this for me. You can all just piss the fuck off. Like, it's just, (laughs) it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. If you read any of the fashion magazines, there's a lot of stuff in, in recent articles in Variety and in Elle, as well as interviews that go back to the late 70s and the early 80s. Everybody kind of described it differently. There was something about Gia that was different from everybody that was modeling at that point in time. I mean, somebody like Patty Hanson, who was incredibly famous, Janice Dickinson, you know, she fought for ages to make it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there was just something about her that was entirely unique. Another really amazing shoot was with photographer Christopher Vaughn Wagenheim for Dior. This was May of 1978. So remember, she came to New York at the end of February. And by May, she's shooting for Dior. Fucking Christian Dior. Like, oh my God. And she's 18 years old. So the shoot was 70 stories up, Margot. It was at the top of the city court building. And it was windy and it was freezing because, you know, it may be nice. It's May in the city. It's probably beautiful down on the ground. But you go 70 stories up, the weather is very different. All of the other models were freaking out. And Gia's just like, okay, whatever. Take the pictures. Nothing phased her, yet at the same time, there were other moments where it seemed like everything phased her. And I think a lot about her is really a study in extremes and a study in opposites. Right. There were people who described her as being incredibly charming and loving, and yet she could also be very volatile and depressive. Right. She had these erratic mood swings that really weren't helped because when she got to New York, You know, the quaaludes and pot switched to cocaine, at least at first. The drugs didn't do anything to help some of these emotional struggles that she was having. There's a lot of talk from people that Stephen Freed interviewed in his book, whether it's family and friends. And he interviewed an extensive amount of people from back in Philadelphia, as well as other models that had worked with her, photographers that had worked with her. And so many of these folks talked about that switch that would happen in her. She didn't necessarily love to model. She didn't really care about getting her photograph taken. A lot of it was what you had talked about earlier, this desire to get affection from her mother, this desire to do something that would please her mother. And her mother always talked about how beautiful she was. So this really made sense. And it was something that her mother would approve of and would appreciate. 
And her mother did. Her mother carried copies of the covers of her daughter's magazines everywhere she went. She would tell people about it. She would brag about it. And, you know, I would just say that she was ambiguous, uh, ambivalent, excuse me, about it. Like on the one hand, it was fun. It was fun money. You know, she was attractive around a lot of pretty girls and she liked pretty girls. And there's, there's things she liked about that. But then there was like keeping a regular schedule that was hard for her. She never really had to. Her dad kind of left her on her own. And there's all kinds of stuff. Like people either say like she was rebellious in a great way, like she stood up for herself. Or she was rebellious in a real pain in the ass way. Like she just wouldn't show up. Yeah. There's two stories I love. One of them is that she would never do lingerie shoots, not for editorial. She had a beautiful body, but she was like, absolutely not. And then one time they, they talked her into going to Long Island. And it was going to be a thing like you go in. I know I've been in these things where you go in the van with the crew and you go out to Long Island. And she was like, nah, I'll drive myself there. No worries. She gets there. She sees there's just lingerie everywhere. She goes, oh, I left something in my car. And then she just takes off. Not going to do it. You're not going to trick me. And then there was another time where she was at a film shoot and a Hell's Angel guy on a bike showed up and they're like, Hey, can we get a picture with this girl and you? And the guy goes, sure. And he drives her around. And then Jude goes, all right, did you get your shot? And I said, sure. She goes, all right, bye. And just takes off. And she split and it took them, I think it took them like three or four days to get the clothes back. But like Vivian Westwood clothes or something like that. And she would do that. She would just take off. And so there were times they were like, okay, the call time could be 6am. You were lucky if she got there by 10. And she would flirt with all the girls, like I said, and sometimes she looked better than others. And then she was very moody. Like if she got a bad haircut, she would be really pissed off and wouldn't leave. And I'm kind of the same way, but she would like, she was a little bit of a diva because she didn't have that period of time where, like I said, she had like break in with catalogs first and fittings and shit like that. Like she was successful right off the bat. She's so young and she had no preparation for it. It's a cauldron of things kind of boiling together. I think a lot of it was just everything came too much too soon. Yeah. People became very indulgent with her because she was so highly desired as as a model and to represent so many different brands. Francesco Scavullo probably photographed her more than anybody else. He's probably one of the most world-renowned portrait photographers since the late 40s. He'd been doing covers for Cosmo and Vogue and taking pictures of Barbara Streisand and Elizabeth Taylor for decades. People like that would put up with her antics because she was mesmerizing. She's stunning. She was. And they were very indulgent with her. In many cases, the stories Margot is describing, when she would show up late, it wasn't just, I'm struggling with the schedule. It was also, yeah, I got high last night and I can't make this call. Right. That really started to become the standard for her behavior. There's the infamous fence photo shoot that I think it's impossible to talk about, Gia, without discussing this. And I'm, I struggle a little bit when I see those images and when I saw that scene in the HBO docudrama because, yes, she was 18, so she was technically an adult, but she was only 18. You know, she was in New York by herself. It was another shoot with Chris von Wagenheim. And when they finished the shoot, it was like, well, I'm going to do some art pictures. I found an interview with Sandy Linter in a 2014 issue of V Magazine Online. She had also done personal pictures with Chris before this photo shoot. And by personal pictures, typically an artist would mean nudes or something that's partially clothed or something that's very, very candid. Nothing that anyone would ever expect to land in a book or in a magazine. Nothing that would ever be used as an advertisement. But it was something that photographers would do, especially folks who wanted to be considered more artist than fashion photographer. Right. Something that was interesting to me in this interview with V Magazine is that Sandy Linter was talking about these photos were never expected to be seen really by anyone. Nobody back then could have even imagined what the internet was. Right. And to see these photos of her and Gia, you know, primarily Gia on the other side of that fence, but also Sandy, because Sandy was the makeup artist at that shoot. Eventually, Chris is like, hey, why don't you get in the shoot? That was nothing that anybody ever expected to see on Facebook or Twitter or social media, because that didn't exist at the time. But it's a very erotic scene. It's a very erotic shoot. And Sandy Linter, and you and I talked about this off the air, she's on Instagram. And she is one of the best Instagrammers out there. Like she gets it right. And she's constantly posting photos. She's a makeup artist in the business since like 1968. And she's still doing it. And she does great work. And she and Gia kind of met on the set. And it was Sandy's first time posing nude for a photographer. And she was really nervous and hesitant about it. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just like her memories are different. But like she posted a story about this a few months ago. And she said, yeah, I was scared. I didn't think anybody would ever see it. But it was kind of fun too. And it was like, she and Gia were flirting with each other 
so much that it was just. That's so interesting because the, in the interview in V Magazine, she talked about how she had no interest in Gia. She didn't even realize Gia was gay. Oh, no. And that Gia came on to her and Gia decided this was the moment that she fell in love with her. I think you're right. I think either like her memories are different. It also depends on the interviewer, right? It depends on the questions that you get asked. And I will say in this in this interview in V Magazine, the questions were very sort of bland and banal. I think it depends on, you know, if you've got a great person doing the interview, they can probably get a little more out of somebody. Or just let them tell their story. And I think like Sandy, like that's why she likes Instagram, because she can just tell the story she wants to tell. You know what I mean? And definitely sc- scroll through because she has tons of pictures of her and Gia. And they began this passionate relationship. That's the first also part of the movie where I'm just like the Sandy Linter wannabe in there. And it's an actress I really love. Elizabeth Mitchell. She was in Lost. She's done so many things. And I like her, but she's, she's, she's very milquetoast in this role. I feel like that character is an amalgamation of the first woman that Gia had a relationship with back in Philly who moved with her to New York for a time. It's Sandy Linter. It's also her on-again, off-again girlfriend that she got together with when she came back to Philadelphia a few years after her her time in New York. It's like they rolled all of those women in Gia's life into into one character, the representation of Sandy Linter. And Sandy really wasn't in Gia's life for as long as the movie would, would have you believe. They were a little on again, off again. Sandy was also someone that wasn't necessarily, she, I don't think she considered herself gay. Again, that very ambiguous period in time. The movie presents it as a very different relationship than what it was, I think. Right. Because they just don't represent all these different women that, that Gia had in her life. And I don't mean that in a way that she was promiscuous, just there were a number of women who played very important roles in Gia's life as friends, sometimes as romantic partners. And the movie just didn't, it really didn't get into that. There are hundreds and hundreds of pages in Stephen Freed's book dedicated to Gia Carangi's photo sessions. And they are fascinating. It shoots with Francesco Scavullo, with Arthur Elgort, more sessions with Chris von Wagenheim. She's in Italian Vogue. She's in Paris Vogue. She's in Bazaar. She's in Cosmo. Like, it's unbelievable. If you wanted to know not just anything, but everything about the high fashion photography industry in the 70s and 80s, you're going to get that in addition to so much about Gia's life. I was fascinated. Like, as I read it, I would then go online and look for the photos from that particular session. Me too. Because I wanted to see how those photos turned out. And some of them were photos I'd already seen, but I didn't realize that it was a Scavulo photo or it was an Elgort photo. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, I've said that probably three times, but that's the only word I can think to describe it because it's just, it's so interesting to see the differences in how the photographers performed and behaved and what was important to them and, and how Gia interacted with them. You start to read about how she wouldn't show up at the shoot or she would show up, but she'd be late or she'd show up and she'd be high. Or she'd leave the shoot because she was coming down and she needed to score again. She needed another fix. And again, we're talking about a 19, 20-year-old girl who's barely lived much of her life at this point. So her first cover was January 1979. It was the Italian issue of Cosmo. And she was still 18 then. She hadn't yet turned 19. It was like a month or two before her 19th birthday. She was working for the biggest designers in the world, and there was no ramp whatsoever. I can't imagine the pressure that that must have put on her. I mean, I remember she, at one point, I read that she told her mom, Jack Nicholson, had kid on her at Studio 54, that Jack Nicholson wanted to, I don't know if he wanted to date her, but he definitely wanted to spend some time with her, (laughs) right? I think that's a polite verb. She had access to so many drugs and thousands of dollars at her disposal. She made a lot of money. I think like Wilhelmina predicted it at one point that she could make 500,000 a year if she was going on that pattern, which you think of 35 years ago, 40 years ago. I mean, that's a lot of money. That's the equivalent of about $1.8 million today. Yeah. Yeah. I want to call out though, she didn't make that money. She earned about $100,000 a year in 78 and 79 for her first two years with Wilhelmina Models. Now, that's still a lot of money. For the time, yeah. But part of the reason for that was the contract that she'd signed with Wilhelmina Models and the percentage that they were taking out of her bookings and the work that she did. She also didn't have an advertising campaign. So she did all of this incredible print work, but she wasn't signed as like the Dior girl or the girl for Revlon. Right. I think part of the problem, too, you know, you you think about this. 
She's in New York by herself, right? I mean, she moved up with a friend. Then her friend really moved out because of a lot of the reasons we talked about, the hot and cold, the mood swings, the drug use, which, although a lot of people were doing some of the same things she was doing, she did it to much greater excess than other people. And it was just really, really difficult for folks to be around that. She didn't have anybody really looking out for her. She didn't have a financier helping manage her money. She didn't have someone that said to her, okay, you are huge. You are much bigger than anybody expected you would get this fast. You can renegotiate this contract. Wilhelmina's talking about how she could have made a half a million dollars, but it's not like Wilhelmina Models did anything to make that happen because they were very firmly rooted in the contract that they signed with her. Well, then Wilhelmina had the unfortunate luck of getting cancer. And she died at 40, and that was a huge shock to Gia. It was a, it was a, a sock in the gut for her because she saw her as a mother figure. And she was sort of a mother figure-ish. There's a lot of people that believe that moment is really what kind of pushed Gia over the edge. She went through the abandonment of her mom when she was 11. Then she lost Wilhelmina in March 1980. That was when she really started to use heroin pretty excessively and using needles. There's something I want to read to you, though. Everybody knew about Gia's drug problems. She wasn't the only model using drugs in the 70s. Oh, certainly not. (laughs) Right. None of the agencies really did anything. I mean, there were other girls that would show up late sometimes. There were other girls that would leave shoots sometimes. I don't think anybody was as egregious with it as, as Gia was. He interviewed her mom, Kathleen Sparrow, quite extensively. One of the things that she said about Gia's drug problem was, and I'm going to read you her quote, She said, I should have realized I always believed what she told me. And I only realized later that she would call me up when things were bad and tell me everything except what was really the matter. Because I loved her so much and really didn't want to believe that anything awful could be happening, I was just blind to it. She wasn't right. She kept telling me I had this big, big problem. And I kept saying, well, Gia, you're a survivor like me. Whatever the problem is, you'll work it out and you'll get over it. I don't want to judge her because I've never been in a situation with a family member who's had a drug addiction. So I have no idea what the best way to support that person is. I do struggle, though, hearing her say that, like, she just didn't realize that she had this issue because physically there were so many things about Gia that were changing between 1979, especially 1980 after Wilhelmina died, and then into 1981 that I think it just feels like it would be hard to ignore. My brother had a very hard problem with drugs and alcohol. My younger brother... And the thing with addicts is they're liars. They lie to themselves, most of all, but they lie to people all the time and they're they're constantly covering themselves up. And a part of them doesn't want to do it, but then another part of them needs to do it. And so it's this, it creates this miserable cycle for them and their family. And and it wasn't like we were talking about it then, recovery, like, because what do you do with a person with a problem? The Betty Ford Clinic didn't open until a few years later. Where, where do they get help? How do you, we didn't know about intervention. There's lots of things we didn't know that we know now. And I think also her mother is just, bless her heart. I just think she's not someone's like going to be a stuck in the weeds kind of mother. Like I'm going to really go. I think, you know, if it gets hard, she kind of, she checks out. Yeah. And I don't think Gia felt safe. No, that's, that's pretty evident. I mean, throughout most of the times when she left New York and came home to Philadelphia. Not to say that Gia didn't pull some really heinous shit because she did. But but yeah, her mom was just like, I can't really deal with this. Yeah. She moved back to Philadelphia in February 1981. So it was literally three years after she got to New York. And so within three years, her career was really on the downward spiral because she just she couldn't get bookings. People were really starting to get to the point where it didn't matter how beautiful she was. It didn't matter how unique and special her photos would always turn out. There was no guarantee they would get photos. And she also had track marks now. And they don't have, like, and nowadays, the the way you Photoshop this stuff, like things are Photoshopped to death. Like that wouldn't even probably be a problem now. It was much trickier to do it then. There's a photograph of G. I think it's one of the first ones where folks realized we're starting to have a problem now with her pictures. She's in a a blue and orange striped t-shirt and shorts set. And it looks like the shoot was done at a lake. She's kind of balanced on a rock. Her hands are behind her. In the photo, you notice dark patches on the inside of her elbows. What the art directors for the shoot had said was that she had needle marks. That was the best they could do with the airbrushing was to, to darken the area so you didn't notice the needle marks. 
nobody's going to take a risk on that because the other problem was photographers and, and studios would have to hire backup models in the event Gia wouldn't show. And then they started charging Gia for the fees that they had to pay these backup models because the only reason they hired them in the first place was because of her and they weren't sure if she was going to show up. And she was just spiraling out of control. She just It just got away from her. So she went home in, in February 1981. She was hoping to get clean. She did get herself into a methadone program. She was going back and forth a little bit to New York, hoping that she was going to be able to revive her career. And she got arrested the first time in March because she was driving under the influence and resisting arrest. There's a, a scene that sort of enacts that in the film. Her attorney hoped that he would be able to get her into an accelerated rehabilitative program because this was her first offense. Regardless of whatever she was doing when she wasn't arrested, this was the first time she was actually arrested. She didn't show up to the hearing because she was in Egypt for a modeling assignment. Oh, jeez. A few months later... Her mother pressed charges against her for stealing, so they issued a warrant for her arrest. Her mother said she stole jewelry, she stole family heirlooms. According to Kathleen Spur, she also stole her mother's wedding ring. She spent the rest of that summer in 81 just crashing with friends, selling whatever she could get her hands on. Sometimes it was her own shit, sometimes it was her friend's stuff. Like She was stealing from her friends so that she could get money for heroin. It's, it's what they do. I know, it's terrible. It's just it's what they do. They need the money. It's just so fucking sad, Margot. She rose so high, like Icarus, and it melted her wings, right? And then she fell so hard. And she didn't have skills. She didn't have coping skills. She didn't have intellectual skills to, like, get her going. I mean, she just, it was like, she was kind of like a fawn. I think that's a great analogy. She didn't have any life skills. You know, she she didn't know how to balance a checkbook. She, she was barely 18 when she first went up there. Right. Somehow she got signed by Elite Models and I, I kind of crack up when I think of Elite Models because Elite Models was founded by John Casablanca. Oh, yeah. Do you remember back in the 80s, the John Casablanca offices that were in every mall on the East Coast? There was one in King in the King of Prussia Mall. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> they were like modeling schools. I mean, they had them in the Cherry Hill Mall. Anybody who's local and maybe they had them in other places, too. But certainly anybody who's local, if you grew up in the 80s, you remember these places. John Casablanca was going to make you a star. You were going to be the next Geo or the next Cindy Crawford. You only had to spend about 800 bucks to get pictures taken. It, it was that and Barbizon, remember? Oh, my God. Yes, Barbizon. I totally remember that. My sister and I went to that, the one in Philly. It was really fun. She got signed by Elite Models right around the end of 1981. And the last photo shoot that Francesco Scavolo did with Gia was early 1982. This is another scene that's enacted in the film. It's gut-wrenching in, in, in the film, and I don't know that it was as compassionate in real life. In the film, the actor who plays Francesco Scavolo seems very father-like. He's very concerned about her addiction and her appearance, and he, he stages the photo so that she can look her best. It wasn't so much staging the photo so she can look her best. It was more like, Jesus Christ, we got to get her to sit on her hands because she has this huge abscess on her hand from shooting up so much. When you look at that photo, she looks so different than so many of her other photos. No, the spark is out of her. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that's what happened, though. In 1982, she was filmed with Francesco Scavolo for an episode of 2020 with Hugh Downs. So, you know, we're going way back if it's Hugh Downs hosting 2020. I remember this, too. It didn't air until January 1983. And pretty soon after that was when Gia returned to Philadelphia for good. I found the episode on YouTube. I didn't see it back in 83. I would have been 14 back then, but I don't I don't remember watching it. You and I were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. It was really hard to watch. Yeah. She looks so old. She just, and lifeless. And there's like, a, I mean, she looks beautiful. Like they have the lip gloss and the hair and everything. But when she's talking, there's just no spark there. There's no, she's just, it's just, just, she's incoherent. Like some of the things she says are just wackadoodle. It's, it's very hard to watch. You know, she wasn't very verbal. She wasn't, uh, I don't even know how to say, it. I don't want to sound mean. I mean, I just, I just think though. She struggled finding her words. Yeah. Yeah. Whether she was using or not at the time that they filmed it, she just seemed so much older than her 22 years. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like life had completely worn her out. And, and it did, but it did it in a matter of four years. Then the troubles began for Gia. The real world became clouded by illusions. When you're young, you don't always, you know, it's hard to make the 
difference between what is real and what is not real. Particularly when, when you're actually. When there's a there's a lot of vultures around you. Right into the lens down there. That's it. Beautiful. Like she that. became erratic. Great. In time, her work Great. was affected. At one point, you got kind of into the drug scene, didn't you? Um. Yes, you could say that I did. Um, it kind of creeps up on you and catches you in a world that's, you know, not that anyone will ever know except someone that has been there. You're free of it, aren't you now? Oh, yes, I am definitely. I wouldn't be here right now talking to you if I wasn't, I don't think. A few months after that aired, she went back to Pennsylvania. She went back to Philly and she checked into Eagleville Hospital. And that's in Norristown, Pennsylvania. It's about a half an hour or so northwest of Philly. People talk considerably about her emotional struggles, about abandonment, her extreme mood swings. But I never found anything that indicated there was a diagnosis that went with that. One of the things about Eagleville, and it's still true today, you know, it's, it's a substance abuse treatment center. It's also a treatment center for people struggling with mental health issues, not necessarily together. Sometimes people will have difficulties with both of those aspects of life. Eagleville was a good place to be because they did try to uncover not just Gia's addiction, but what was maybe triggering the addiction. But I never read anything that indicated there was, you know, like an actual diagnosis. I did go digging online and I found blogs from from people like us, people who just are interested in Gia Karanji and, and who she was and her career. And there's a contingency of, of Gia fans that believe she suffered from bipolar disorder and it just went undiagnosed. I think that's a reasonable assessment to make, but I have to say that's not an assessment that was made by any physician. But it makes sense. The wild mood swings, the, the high high, the low lows, trying to self-medicate to, to work it all out. That's what Carrie Fisher had. And same thing. You know, she spent decades trying to do it. And it's it's a very hard way to live. And I, I, I have so much compassion for her because that just must have been scary. And then, like you said, she didn't have any skills. Like, what was she going to do with herself, you know? She tried really hard to get clean. She tried really hard to stay clean. There was a period of time after she completed the program at Eagleville, and Eagleville was different because it was inpatient. It wasn't an outpatient methadone program like the ones she'd done twice before. This was inpatient. There was therapy. There was detox. You know, you were there for months because once you completed one aspect of the program, then there was another aspect and they were trying to teach you some coping skills and some life skills. Right. There was a period of time where she was off drugs for a little while and it didn't last because there would be events that would happen in her life that would trigger something, you know, like the, the death of her Aunt Barbara, the on again, off again with with one of her girlfriends, right. problems with her mom and and she didn't have coping skills. She didn't know. I mean, she was you know, she was still basically like a little girl. She Nobody ever taught her this is what it means to be an adult or this is what it means to be independent. They put her in this independent situation when she had no she had no preparation for it. For months in in 1985 and 1986, Gia thought she was sick and she thought she was sick with AIDS. It's so strange because it, it's almost like she knew that she had it. She was almost obsessed with people that she knew from the industry who had become diagnosed, people that lost their lives to AIDS. When you think about the 70s and we think about the early 80s, especially, there were so many people who didn't understand the disease. They were afraid of the disease. Many people called it the gay plague. I mean, this was it was horrible when AIDS was first discovered because people thought, oh, this can't ever affect me. I'm white, heterosexual. You know, this will never enter my household. And that's not the way it works. Right. A disease doesn't care. All the fear and paranoia that she had that she was sick, she was right. She got diagnosed in June 1986 with AIDS. It started as bilateral pneumonia, anemia. She had a low white blood cell count, and that blood count was really sort of the first indicator we think there might be something else going on. Even before the test came back verifying that she had AIDS, she was put in a fucking quarantine unit because people, that's the way they treated people. That's how they treated people. I know. Did you see the the film of her just before she died where um, I think it was on hard copy or something. Somebody found this clip of her and she's in a waiting room and she's just struggling to talk. And it's it's really hard to watch. It was just like one of the last things she did. She's talking about what she wants to do with her life. Yeah. And she's just like, yeah, the poor thing is just like out of it. And it's hard. 
just a couple months after her diagnosis, she was admitted to Hanneman Hospital in Philadelphia. She was there for a regular visit, regular scheduled tests to monitor and and determine what are the best courses of treatment for her condition. And her health had denigrated so much that her doctor's like, "We, we have to admit you. And then she spent the next few weeks of her life on a ventilator. She never got out of Hanneman. The last few months of her life seemed like they were unbearable, especially the time that she spent in the hospital. Her mother admittedly refused to let a lot of her family members come and see her. She refused to let a number of Gia's friends come and see her. She took over just controlling every aspect of Gia's care. As hard as that sounds, it's probably something that Gia wanted because she spent most of her life just wanting some attention from her mother. She wanted her mother to take care of her. She wanted her mother to come back. I wonder if this was her mom trying to make up for the fact that when Gia was diagnosed with AIDS, when she finally got out of the hospital after they treated her pneumonia, her stepfather wouldn't let her come back and live at her mother's house. He was afraid that he would get fired if his boss or his coworkers found out his stepdaughter had AIDS. I can't say that I personally can understand that way of thinking, but I can understand why some people in the 80s would think that way. If you knew somebody with AIDS, it was like there was a blemish on you. Oh, absolutely. And people were scared. Yeah. People were terrified of it. And and maybe in a weird way, yeah, Gia didn't want people to see her in that condition. Maybe she just wanted to have her mom take care. Remember being a little kid and you were sick and and you mom would take care of you for the day, like bring the TV into the room. And like, I love that. Those are some of my favorite memories. Yeah. As hard as it was for some of her friends and, and her aunt, um, Nancy, her mom's sister, who talked with Stephen Freed about how much they wished they could have been there at the end. And they felt like Kathleen just cut them off. I can see where that might have been an act of love and where Gia may have perceived it as such, because all she ever wanted was her mom to take care of her. Mm-hmm. She passed away on November 18th, 1986. She was just 26 years old. So sad. Oh, my God. It's, it's just a tragedy. It's tra- a tragedy. It's a total tragedy. Life and death. Energy and peace. If I stopped today, it was still worth it. Even the terrible mistakes that I made and would have unmade if I could. The pains that have burned me and scarred my soul, it was worth it. For being allowed to walk where I walked, which was to hell on earth, heaven on earth, back again, into, under, far in between, through it, in it, and above. And I want to mention, you know, so Stephen Freed's book that was published in 1993, it actually started as a piece in Philadelphia Magazine where he was a senior writer. Mm-hmm. And then he expanded it into a book with access to people that you just cannot believe the access he had. Gia's mom gave him her journals, gave him her address book. And he just, I mean, he contacted everybody. There, The names in this book of people that he interacted with and interviewed to, to try to understand who this young woman was and what her career was like. It's just unbelievable what people shared with him and how they opened up to him. He was also interviewed by Elizabeth Vargas in 2001 for an ABC show called Vanished. I don't even remember that show. No. It's like a 2020 or Dateline. It was called Vanished. It was an episode in 2001 about Gia Karanji. That was something else that I found on YouTube. And when I saw that it was called Vanished, I'm like, okay, she didn't fucking vanish. She didn't disappear. No. (laughs) Suddenly she was gone. Nobody knew what happened to her. Guess they fucking did. She had a horrible drug addiction. She left New York. She couldn't keep up her career. And so many of these people that like, oh, she was amazing. She was amazing to work with. Well, nobody was able to do anything to help her. And I just I hate the idea that this program was run. And I'm sure there's tons of people who watched it and appreciated learning about this beautiful young woman. I just hate the idea that it was wrapped up in the concept that she disappeared and no one knew what happened to her. And that's just that's that's just not true. Yeah, it's bullshit. Of course, they did get into the truth of the matter, but I just I didn't like the way it was presented. I I felt it was very disingenuous. But if you're interested in learning more about Stephen Freed, he was interviewed for that program and you can pick up his book. Uh, I got it on Amazon. You know, you can get it at any any bookstore or online retailer. The HBO docudrama is available on demand. That's how I watched it. I know, Margaret, you said you hadn't seen it in a really long time, but it is available on demand right now from cable providers. One thing I did find, though, that was absolutely incredible, Margo, I don't know if you've ever seen this. If you haven't, I'll send you the link and I'm going to post the link on social media. It's a video from 1979 and it features Francesco Scavullo, 
and Gia Karanji. It's called Historic Films. I saw that. It's about eight minutes long. Gia barely speaks because it's all about the photographer and how he works with his muse. And it's very artsy. And like the voiceover is just so funny. I was kind of laughing when I watched it. But it's a photo shoot. In the photo shoot, she's wearing this kind of tannish brown unitard. And that outfit is one of her earliest cover images on Cosmo. She looks unbelievable. And she's so young and vibrant and I mean, she pretty much was never not using drugs, but this was a few years before she started using heroin. She looked happy. Yeah. And it's such a contradiction to the 2020 piece with Hugh Downs. It's a real contradiction to the footage you mentioned, one of the last interviews with her that that showed up online. For me, it was like if there was one thing I wanted to go away with as kind of the last image of her in my mind, it was that video clip. She looked happy. She loved working for Scavulo. They had a great relationship. His photos of her, uh, those covers for for Cosmo, she is so smoking hot and beautiful. Oh, they're the best. They're the best. Oh, the outfits, the hair, the makeup, like everything. It's just, she had it. She had it all. Stephen Freed was interviewed by Elle magazine in April 2013 about his 1993 book, Thing of Beauty. One of the questions they asked him was, how did he think things have changed since Gia's time? He said, we used to just throw out the model. What does it mean in society when Cindy Crawford doesn't go away? Now, that in no way was meant to imply that Cindy Crawford had any kind of a, an addiction problem. He talked about how the models of Gia's time were just sort of washed up and you never heard anything from them again when people were done taking their pictures. I thought it was interesting that he mentioned Cindy Crawford, though, when he was asked a question about Gia because people used to call her Baby Gia. Yeah. And she was signed by Elite the same agency that was the last agency to represent Gia the same year that Gia died. She was signed in 1986. And they even told her, like, like she was told, like, you're, you're, you're going to be our new cash cow. You're the new Gia. And she's like, thanks a lot. You know, I'd like to be the first me. <laughs> and Cindy, but Cindy's very, from a very good home, very together. She's super smart. Uh, Cindy Crawford really had her shit together. We, we didn't know this at the time, but she, she was thinking the long game. She's made an incredibly long career for herself, and she's diversified. I mean, she's been in music videos. She's done incredible campaigns for makeup companies, and she's got her own line of skincare now. Like you said, she was in it for the long haul. Yep. She was going to ride this thing as long as she could in, in different ways, and she's just, she's stunning. I mean, you can't take it away from her. My God, she's, you know, like, I look at her, and I'm like, this bitch is my age? What? Fucking. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> And she looks just as great, and she has beautiful children and everything, yeah. I know. I want to thank you for taking the time to join me to talk about somebody that we both really are just fascinated with and, and someone that we both, I think, kind of treasure in a way, and about Gia Karanji, Philly girl from Northeast. I like to think she would love this podcast. I think like if she were alive <laughs> uh, and we met her, we said, oh, you know, you would say, you would say, oh, I have a podcast it's called Twisted Philly. I'd love it. I'm going to check it out right now. I think she would be so into it. I do want to mention, I, I did actually find one of her older brothers. Oh. And reached out to him to inquire about whether or not he would be willing to talk with me for the show. And I did not ever get a response back from him. Okay. I don't want to ever hound anybody. Right. And it may be difficult for them to talk about. I know there's moments when you and I were talking where it was difficult for us. Right. And, you know, this was his little sister, but I did want to at least mention that. I lost my little brother a few years ago, so I know how that is. I know what that's like, so I, I totally get it. So before we go, let's take a minute and let folks know where they can find you and listen to all of your amazing shows. <laughs> the best thing to do is follow me on social media, Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Brooklyn Fitchick, and my blog is brooklynfitchick.com, so please follow me. And I want to let folks know in just about I am going to be in Park Slope. I'm going to be in Brooklyn. Yes! Margo and I are going to be seeing It Chapter 2 together at the Alamo Drafthouse Theater. Holy shit. And we're going to talk about it. It's going to be on Book versus Movie in a couple of weeks, so be sure to subscribe. And I've been hearing nothing but good things. I hear it's long. It's a three-hour movie. but I, Oh, I'm okay with that. I like long movies. I do, too. And I think it's going to be so much fun. I can't wait to do this. So, you guys, please subscribe to Book versus Movie, and you'll be able to hear it. 
Yeah, and um, if you go back probably about two years ago this time, you can hear the episode we did for chapter one. Yep. And I know there's a ton of Stephen King fans among the Twisted Philly listeners. I know some folks from Twisted Philly have already joined the group for book versus movie. So I know there's a bunch of folks that are looking forward to this. It'll be amazing to be like face to face in the same room with you instead of just on Skype. I cannot wait. We've been friends for so many years and it'll be the first time. I'm so excited. It's fucking crazy. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. I'd like to thank Margot D for joining me today. Both of us grew up in the Philly area, so it was hard not to hear about the legend of Gia, the Philly girl who made it bigger than anyone ever could have imagined and suffered so much at such a young age. Margot mentioned her new show, What a Creep, which she co-hosts with Sonia Morgan about world-class creeps. I'll share a promo for that podcast at the end of this episode so you can learn more about it. And I highly recommend the episode about Lance Armstrong. I learned so much I never knew about him as an athlete, a person, and a creep. Up next is the promo for What a Creep podcast. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters. This is Margo. And this is Sonia. And you might remember us from when we were talking about the Dorking Out podcast. Well, we wanted to announce the launch of our new show, What a Creep. Every week, we talk about the really twisted jerks, assholes, and losers who deserve the title of creep. And good news, some of them are not from Philly. (laughs) And what's awesome about this podcast is we will never run out of material. It's the real who's who of who's the worst. And we'll end each show talking about someone who isn't a creep so you don't feel like the entire world is a dumpster fire. And you can find our show, What a Creep, wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media at What a Creep on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't follow us too closely. Yeah, don't be a creep.